Good morning. I believe the children are dismissed now and are making their way uh, to uh, their uh, continued worship and study. Let me invite you to be seated, please. I'm going to pray in a minute. I want to say what a joy it is to be with the Holy Cross Cathedral family this morning and to be able to bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in the Diocese of the Carolinas, where I live and where I serve. But I also have the opportunity to assist your bishops in this diocese, and I have just attended the Synod, which you all have so beautifully hosted. And so I want to thank you as a participant in that Synod to all those who worked and and made that such a remarkable experience. And if hosting synods and everything else that is going on in the life of this congregation is not enough, you all are in the process, I understand, of saying goodbye to Dean Henry and welcoming your new dean uh, this next Sunday to this cathedral. These are huge moments in the life of the church and of this church. And they're moments that are filled with this great celebration and anticipation as well as some grief and sorrow. But most of all, what I want to say to you, this is an opportunity for you as the people of God to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and to remember his faithfulness to you over the generations and over the years, those who are new to this place, those who have been here a long time. Uh, This is the time for you to keep your eyes on Jesus and to continue to move forward in the mission and the ministry that he's uniquely given you to the wider community and church in which he has placed you. And what better way for us to do that this morning at this kind of critical intersection in your life than to to open up God's Word together. And in that Word, to to hear His perspective, to gain His perspective, to to allow Him to speak into our lives. So I want to ask you to just pray with me for a moment as we do just that. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that Your Holy Spirit would attend the proclamation of your word this morning. That you would open our hearts and our lives and and our minds and all that we are, that we might receive those good things which you desire to give us. That we might be equipped for your service and for life in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to begin by just briefly kind of setting uh, the tone for this with our Deuteronomy 6 reading. And Deuteronomy 6, what we have is is Moses kind of on the brink of the promised land. Uh, Deuteronomy is a retelling of the law. It's, It's Moses summing up all of the commands of God and giving them to God's people. Uh, before they go into the promised land. And in this retelling, Moses gives the Shema, which became, uh, and to this day, is central in the, the worship life of God's people, the Israel. And the words are this. You've heard them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Moses is laying out the the commands of God and connecting our obedience to all that God has revealed in those commandments to our love of him. And so his parting words, as Israel goes into the promised land, is to make sure that they're living in this love relationship with their God, the one God, the true God. They're going into a land of many gods and competing gods, but, but theirs is the one true God. And then he goes on and he says this, And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see, the the scriptures have told us in the new covenant that the law is holy and perfect, it's righteous, it's just, it's a revelation of of God's desire for us. And so Moses is saying, love the Lord your God with all that you are, hold up these commandments, teach them to your children, whether you're sitting down, rising up, walking on your doorpost, remember God's law, remember what God has said and what God has revealed. Now, I I say this because what Israel had at that point, having already been delivered from slavery and bondage in Egypt, on the verge of the promised land, they had been given by God the path to life, the commands, if only they could walk in them. So, So hold on to that picture, and now let's fast forward to the time of Jesus, many, many centuries later. And Jesus, in this gospel reading we heard today in Mark 12, is is telling a parable. That's not unusual. Jesus told parables. He loved to tell these stories which took everyday stuff, things that, that people could relate to, and use those stories, weave them together in such a way that he's teaching us about life in the kingdom of God. Jesus was a master storyteller. And his parables, his stories, had an an unusual power. They they were able to grip the lives of those who heard them. And evidently, this parable that we heard today is no exception to that. Jesus told this parable, and, and what it had was the power to shake up and even offend some of those who heard it. And in particular, what we find out is that this story that Jesus told about this vineyard uh, upset the Jewish leaders of their day. Mark says this at the end of, of the reading. And after, they were seeking to arrest him, and, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. And so they left and went away. Jesus told this story, this this story that that gripped the hearers. It was a story about this this man who who built and planted a vineyard. 
And it had a fence and a wine press and it had a great tower in it. You get the picture. It was a fully equipped operation. It was ready to go. And Jesus found some tenants and he leased it out to them. And they were given this incredible trust and this this freedom to enjoy the vineyard, to work the vineyard, to, to share in the fruit of the vineyard. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You see, what we might miss that none of those in Jesus' audience did miss is that the vineyard is Israel. If you go to passages like Isaiah 5, you see that this is explicitly taught. God had provided Israel with all that she needed. All of the commands, all of the revelation, all that they needed to live under his rule and his provision and his grace. They had all they needed to love him with all that they were to enjoy the fruit of their labor. They had this trust and this freedom that came along with the vineyard. And Jesus masterly captures the, the, the really the entire sweep of, of the Old Testament. Telling the story of these tenants who time and time again rejected God's servants when they, when they came to collect their share of the harvest. Their fruit of the labors of that vineyard. And what did they do? Jesus said they beat some. They treated others shamelessly. Some they killed. So now we're beginning to see why they could be so offended. Jesus was calling out these Jewish leaders' own gross mismanagement of the vineyard. He was revealing their blatant disloyalty to God who owns the vineyard. It was an indictment of the leadership of Israel. They had abused their trust and their freedom. But believe it or not, the real offense really hadn't come yet. It was still to come. It came in these words that Jesus continued with. He said, he had still one other, a beloved son. And finally he sent him to them, Jesus said, saying, they will respect my son, but... But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants and and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture, Jesus said? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it was marvelous in our eyes. You see what Jesus is saying here. He's identifying himself in a very bold way as the son. And he's foretelling his own rejection and quoting from a messianic psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He had still one other, a beloved son. 
And the story took a, took a, a nasty turn for the Jewish leaders as he, as he identified himself as that son. This is what we treasure as Christians. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should, should not perish but have everlasting life. Hebrews says it this way. In, in the past, in many and various ways, God has spoken to us through the prophets. But in these last days, in these last days, he's spoken to us through a son. It's an amazing claim that Jesus is making. It's no wonder that he turned to his disciples and said, but who do you say that I am? Because it's a question we all must answer. Who do we say that Jesus is? And Peter stepped up. You heard the Christ, the, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. C.S. Lewis, in his great classic book, Mere Christianity, says that, he says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That is, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him and his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, says Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or, Lewis says, you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let no one come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He's not left that open to us, Lewis says. He did not intend to. You see, you can't have it both ways. Jesus' claim to be the Son of God must come square in the face of each of us. We must make a decision. Aren't you glad that Jesus isn't simply a great moral teacher? Aren't you glad that this faith that we have and this life that we have in Christ isn't about trying harder and doing better and performance? Aren't you glad that there's so much more? You see, dear friends, the, the truth of the matter is we've all mismanaged the trust and the freedom that God has given us. And one mistake would be to read this parable and, and think that what, what Mark is talking about, what Jesus is talking about, is somehow God giving up on Israel and moving on with the Gentiles. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about all of us and, and our own complicity in the rejection and death of our Lord. If anything, the, what's happening is those tenants are losing the vineyard and it's being handed over 
to the Jewish apostles. They're the ones who continue to manage the vineyard of God, the Israel of God, the people of God. And we as Gentiles, that's an assumption, we may not all be Gentiles, but we as Gentiles have by God's grace been grafted in to Israel, to God's people. It makes me think of what's going on in our world and Lord, forgive us as Christians if in any way we've, we've contributed to the message of anti-Semitism. What's, what's happened in this horror in Pittsburgh and in, in the, the, the Tree of Life synagogue in that shooting. We need to be praying for these brothers and sisters. That they would know the Christ. That they would receive the grace. The scriptures are so clear. Read Romans. We all have sinned. We all fall short of the grace of God. And Jesus knew, as God's Son, uniquely knew what it was that we needed. The very stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You see, this is the gospel. This is the crux of God's activity in Christ. That's why the psalmist goes on to say, this is marvelous in our eyes. This is the good news. This is what's marvelous. Jesus, when he talks about the rejection of that stone, is talking about his cross. He's talking about giving his life up for us, dying in our place. And when Jesus talks about becoming the cornerstone, talking about the resurrection. He's talking about his ascension to God's right hand. He's talking about being exalted above all else. The name above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your your soul, and with all your mind. How can we do it? John says we love him because he first loved us. It's when we look to the cross of Christ, when we look to his wounds, to his rejection, and realize that in his resurrection, we have been raised with him by faith, by believing in him. Gracious God and Father, we bless you and thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the trust that you've given us in him, for the reality of your forgiveness and your grace, and for the life of your Spirit in us, who takes up residency in us when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for the gift of grace and all of this through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.